Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. Welcome to the next episode of Sleep Talk. So this is actually episode number 40. And today we're going to be talking about normal sleep. Hopefully try and challenge you about what you think about normal sleep. And welcome again, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. It comes around quickly, doesn't it? The episodes. So this episode is about normal sleep. And later on, you'll hear us interview Darian Leader. And that's on the back of Moira, your pick last month for yes, his book. a book that you hadn't heard of, you hadn't read yet. You had heard of, I know, yeah. but you hadn't read. <laughs> Within minutes, it was in my cart and I read it and I'm like, right, yeah. this is great. We've got to talk to Darian. Yeah. So you'll, you'll hear from him shortly. So what's been happening, Dave, in the last month? So there was an interesting article got published in the Medical Journal of Australia about looking at screening questionnaires for sleep apnea. And the, the interesting thing for me is that it's something that's relevant in Australia at the minute because there's been some changes in the way we use questionnaires to look at eligibility for sleep studies. But the more interesting thing was it really highlighted the diversity of opinion in this area. Essentially, the article showed that if you applied uh, screening questionnaires, in this case a stop-bang questionnaire and a Lipware sleepiness score, depending on where you set the sensitivity and the specificity, a certain amount of people will fall out and not be picked up by that sort of screening system. That's okay, you sort of adjust those thresholds. But the commentary included commentary from both Doug McAvoy and David Hillman, people I really respect, very good at what they do. They think a lot about this field and they sort of really think about how we apply this on a population health level. Both being guests, of course, on the previous podcast episodes. They have indeed. And they had quite divergent opinions about how to interpret that study. You know, Doug, with his background of being a primary author on the SAVE study, looking at the cardiovascular effects and really thinking, well, maybe we're diagnosing too much sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And David Hillman, coming from a slightly different approach, saying, well, looks a big burden of disease in the community and don't set the thresholds too high because people will miss out. And I can absolutely see both sides of that argument. And I think it's a discussion as a field we need to actually have a bit more to work out, you know, where do we sit and what are we trying to do? What about the uh, Australian Podcast Awards? We, we weren't there. I know. Were you there? Uh, I've, kept pretty quiet. I've kept pretty quiet about <laughs> it, but we were nominated for the Australian Podcast Awards, so pretty proud of that. Didn't make the final cut. But Moira, I've got to tell you, so in the final cut, it was the ABC, it was SBS, it was yeah. the major media outlets. Yeah. So it was a little independent podcast. <laughs> I, I could live with the fact we, we weren't quite we got in nominated. That. Yeah, we're not that, quite we'll, in that. We'll take that as a that's success enough for now. So the theme for this month's podcast is normal sleep. And one of the key factors for us when we're working with people and they're sort of you know, the reason that they might come and see us is they perceive their sleep isn't what they expect it to be. And people measure that against their expected normal. So that really raises the question, well, what is normal? Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised we haven't. I mean, we talk about that a lot, but we haven't actually had a podcast dedicated before to what is normal sleep. But we talk a lot in previous episodes about one's expectation of sleep and all that that entails. So this is good. It's good timing. Because there is that expectation sometimes that it's eight hours long, it's continuous, um, it's not normal to sleep during the day, I shouldn't be tired and I shouldn't sleep during the day. So we'll start to break that down and work out where that comes from. And it's relevant in practice. There's a couple of people I saw earlier this week. One of them goes to bed at 10, goes to sleep pretty quickly, sleeps till 3, then is awake. So they've had a five-hour block of sleep and is then awake. And then in the afternoon has a nap between one and two, gets a total of six hours sleep per 24 hours and feels pretty good. That's the bottom line, isn't it? It's the occupational 
and or social functioning. Right. So functioning well but highly distressed about that and had been using medications to try and put themselves back to sleep and doing all manner of things to desperately get back to sleep. But maybe if you pair it back, the sleep pattern wasn't that far off a biological sleep pattern in the first place. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting because it's sort of, it's exactly why I got involved with things like doing this podcast or being on the board of the Sleep Health Foundation and doing some media for them. It's actually been driven by being able to have these public discussions and bring this out into the open. It's a real dilemma for me that I, because I value sleep, I want everyone to value sleep. It's so important. Like the message is I'm very happy to talk about the importance of sleep and the detriment to us if we don't get enough and all because that's factual. However, there is there's a big, there is a big groundswell about people getting very anxious and distressed about their sleep, which otherwise, yeah, we think, look, it's not so bad. You, you, it's pretty normal and your your functioning's pretty good, really. You don't look or sound or it doesn't seem all that bad, but their distress is super high. So it's a bit, it's close to my heart, this, this topic. Yeah, absolutely. So then when you mentioned to me Darian Leader's book, Why Can't We Sleep? And I started to read it, I'm like, oh, this is good. So, you know, this is the sort of material that I think if people can hear where those beliefs about sleep come from, it might help with some of that recalibration mm-hmm. and being a little bit more comfortable with the sleep that they're getting rather than thinking that their sleep has to meet these other expectations. So Darian's a British psychoanalyst and author and is a member of the College of Psychoanalysts and founding member of the Centre for Freudian Analysis and Research. Thanks a lot, Darian, for helping us out. Hi, David. Hi, Moira. Hello. So where does the idea that we need eight hours of sleep originate from? This is a very old idea. No one knows exactly at what point and in which culture it originates. But people have been bringing up the idea of a division of the day into eight-hour segments for several centuries. But at the same time, there's been many people who've argued simultaneously that Although eight hours is a nice division of 24, we don't actually need to have an eight-hour sleep or period of rest, but rather there'll be an individual variability. And you can always find an emphasis on variations in what individuals need for sleep going as far back as the sources we have for the eight-hour number. And was it always about sleep or was it sometimes about respite or restoration? Yes, exactly. Sometimes it's phrased in language of rest, respite, moving away from the tasks and duties of the day. And then gradually over time, it becomes more and more linked to sleep. And what about that notion that that eight hours has got to be in one block rather than, you know, a cumulative? Yes, indeed. The notion of a block, a consolidated eight-hour sleep, is a very recent idea. It's something that dates probably from the mid-19th century onwards. That's when it really starts to gather momentum. And even today, you read a lot of stuff in the media and in some um, sleep science books and articles, usually more the popular stuff than the scientific stuff, saying that we need eight hours of sleep a day. And yet, even the most recent results, I don't know if the people who are listening to this might have had the chance to see the massive meta-analysis in a recent issue of Sleep Medicine Reviews, looking at almost 37 million people. And they found that the causes of death, we're often told that if we don't get eight hours, we open ourselves up to all these dangerous illnesses and diseases, are actually greater if you sleep for eight hours or more than if you sleep for less. 
So this huge review of studies over the last 20 years shows us that there is a problem in expecting a nice eight-hour sleep. But also, if we look back historically, we find that really there's never been an insistence on having an eight-hour block and that people have tended to sleep biphasically. In other words, waking up in the middle of the night, maybe for an hour, an hour and a half, and then going back to sleep again. And more than 30 languages actually have vocabulary and terminology to distinguish what could be called a first sleep and a second sleep. These results mainly come from the historian Roger Urkic, but then have been replicated by other historians working since then. So the idea of a single block of sleep is a recent invention. And along the lines of that, with all your research, Darian, what did you what do you make of naps or what, what do you what do you make of what the literature on your research has told you about naps? Yeah, that's another good question. I mean naps are an interesting thing because Historically, we've seen a phasing out of naps in the traditional siesta cultures. Spain, which for for centuries um, has had napping in the early afternoon, from 2006, the Spanish government banned workplace napping in public office and civil service offices. In China, the traditional multi-hour nap in the early afternoon has been reduced to one hour. In Japan, traditional napping in the workplace, in restaurants, even in the subway, is increasingly frowned upon. And these changes have been linked by most of the historians and anthropologists that have studied them to the dominance of new work ethics, the idea that time spent asleep means money lost for business, unproductive workers, and so we have to phase out napping to keep on working. There's certainly a truth in that, but at the same time, what we've seen in the last 15 years or so is the fact that many consultants to businesses have argued that naps actually increase the productivity of workers. And so many big businesses like Pepsi, IBM, Pizza Hut have tried to introduce the practice of workplace napping with special sleep areas or sleep pods and so on. What's interesting is that this hasn't really worked, that it hasn't really been successful. And some of the companies that that sell sleeping spaces to the larger corporations have actually gone out of business Mm. because it's very difficult to get people into a state where they're able to sleep at work. So it's so dominant, the imperative to continually be productive, to continually look at the screen, to do the things that you need to do. This napping culture that was predicted as, you know, the future of modern work it hasn't really happened and each of moira and i occasionally get asked to go into workplaces and talk to workers and much like you alluded to in your book you know we get this brief from the boss or the ceo look you know tell them sleep's important but don't tell them we've got to take naps at work or take lots of time out because that you know we work hard and it is trying to almost like insert a nap into the rest of a busy day without interrupting the busy day and the productivity so yeah, that hasn't really been implemented well. I mean, it is interesting that, that both sleeping and not sleeping both are seen as serving the same master, which is the economic productivity and the growth of business. But you can tell that to a business and to the people that work there. But at the same time, as, as you're saying, you know, it, it's very, very difficult to actually get people not only to recognize the importance that napping might have, but also to actually be in a place where you're able to do that. You know, how, how easy it is for some people, but not for others, to switch off during the day. So you talked earlier about 
being awake at night and a first sleep and a second sleep. So in your book, you used a term uh, watching or the watching hour. Do you want to expand on that a bit more? Yeah, this is a very interesting idea that just as more than 30 languages have got terminology for a first and a second sleep, they've also got terms for this break in between the two sleeps. When people would get up, they do things, they, they might do needlework, do chores, have sex, do cooking, prepare things for the day ahead, do repairs. Many different cultures will have different activities that are associated with that time. But no one saw, you know, in any anything strange about the idea of getting up in the middle of the night and doing things. And they certainly didn't encourage people to stay in bed and try and get back to sleep. And historically, again, it's very interesting that until the mid to late 19th century, when people sought help for sleeping problems, it tended to be for problems in falling asleep at the beginning of the night, but not for waking up. This wasn't seen as a problem. And it's only towards the end of the 19th century that middle of the night waking suddenly starts to become pathologized. This watching hour at the time in the middle of the night suddenly seems like an aberration and something that you need help for. So in that sense, is that what we call a busy mind and being overstimulated? Is that, just, is that particular to the 21st century, do you think? That's another very good question. When you look at accounts of sleeping difficulties today, you'll see very often the explanation, you know, how can anyone get to sleep with the mobile phone constantly being on your computer? The moment you wake up in the morning, you're going to have logged up more messages, more work demands, more information. But if you then go back, let's say 120 years, go to the 1890s, you see the medical journals speak in exactly the same terms about insomnia epidemics, sleeping disturbances caused by new technologies, the telegraph, the railroads for them seem to collapse space and time. So that the moment you wake up in the morning, you'll get some business news that can affect you. You're going to be worrying about that before you go to sleep. And so this sort of so-called epidemic of problems then, 120 years ago, was linked to exactly the modern technologies that people evoke today. But if you then go back even further before the Industrial Revolution to the 17th century, you find that people then are also complaining about sleeping problems linked most often to difficulties with money and business. So there are always things that keep people awake. The way that they're accounted for, the way that they're seen as normal or abnormal, that will change culturally. But I think there's, there's always been an emphasis historically on the external world, the stimulations of the external world being responsible for keeping us awake. And another very nice example, in the early 17th century, many scholars were complaining about the fact that it was no longer possible to know everything, that it was no longer possible to read every book that was published. What today we see as a tiny number of books being published for them, it was impossible to read everything. And so they complained about information overload in terms very similar the way we complain today. And in that watching hour, one of the other things I liked in your book was that uh, speculation about is ruminative time and reflection actually helpful? That was something that surprised me a great deal when I was doing the research for the book, that I'd assumed that in that watching hour, people would just be, you know, occupied with doing things, you know, in their, in their living space, repairing things, repairing things and so on. But there are a lot of examples which indicate that people were, as you say, actually thinking and reflecting and maybe talking about their dreams, thinking about their dreams. Obviously, a lot of that would have involved 
some kind of religious framework in which people would run through the events of the day and perhaps evaluate them and judge them in religious terms. We don't perhaps all do that today, but we might evaluate them in other terms. But it's very interesting to see the way in which it wasn't all manual labor in the house that people were occupied with, but there was also some kind of um, intellectual work that was going on. And how do you reconcile? So this is one of the things we struggle with in practice. So some of our behavioral components of cognitive behavioral therapy of insomnia are almost trying to make sleep meet our sort of industrial norm of sleep to make sleep continuous and make sleep onset fast and eradicate the awakening during the night. How do we reconcile what we're trying to tell people to do to improve their sleep with the more cognitive side of realigning and recalibrating them about, you know what, you know, sleep probably isn't as abnormal as you thought it was. Yeah, I think that's a, another very important point, that the more one insists on an unbroken sleep, the more that people will feel stressed out and pressured to have that block of, usually in the media it's eight hours. But obviously that will make it in itself more difficult to sleep because the more you're worried about how long you're going to sleep for, that will actually affect the process of falling asleep and maintaining sleep. And many people, the first thing we do in the morning is to look at the clock, not to see if they're going to be late for work, but to see if they've had the number of hours that they've set themselves. And I think, you know, obviously one of the tasks of the the many different kinds of cognitive therapy for sleep problems is to make people more relaxed about those imperatives to try to loosen this weight of an eight-hour norm. Interestingly, the the authors of the the massive meta-analysis in Sleep Medicines Review conclude that they recommend cognitive therapies less for the sleep problems themselves than for helping people to get over their fears that are generated by all the stuff in the media about needing to have the eight-hour block. We find that a lot. In fact, um, people have had quite successful therapy, for instance, maybe six sessions. In the end of it, they may still only be sleeping the same amount of hours, but they have far less anxiety about it, less, less concerns, feeling more positive, feeling more empowered. And I think also if people are aware of the history of sleep, the fact that it's tended for centuries to involve this watching hour and being broken and interrupted or biphasic, as they say, if someone wakes up in the middle of the night, they don't have to panic and feel massive anxiety about not having a consolidated block, but just recognize that this is what people have been doing for centuries. And in, in a way, what's bizarre is the imperative to sleep uninterruptedly for one consolidated block. It's like we're trying to shoehorn sleep into a societal norm or into where a corner where we conveniently need it to be to then maintain our productivity, busyness uh, during our waking time. Exactly. And one of the things you often find in the sleep science research is the idea that sleeping a set number of hours, having an uninterrupted sleep and so on, will increase a worker's productivity to produce an optimal performance. But remember, what's the difference between a human and a machine? Precisely the fact that humans don't always run in a kind of perfect way, that we don't always have optimal performance. And that if we did, that would be very, very strange. And, you know, underperformance itself could be seen as a norm. Why, why would we expect someone to always work to the max, to always work perfectly using all of their skills and so on? 
why can't we accept a culture in which people's work rhythms go up and down according to moods, to pressures, to what's going on internally, to other things happening in their environment? You know, there'll be so many different things that can affect how someone operates, how they function, how they relate, and of course, how they sleep. Yeah, that's a really nice point because I sense some of the sleep dissatisfaction, which is largely the clients we see are often more sleep dissatisfied rather than an abnormal sleep pattern, is driven by productivity expectations. There's that expectation of complete, you know, 100% performance for every single wakeful minute with no variability. Exactly. And it's very interesting recently in, in this country, in England, there are sleep stories almost every single day in the media about how important sleep is and getting your big block of sleep. And yet, only a couple of months ago, with our Brexit fiasco, when Theresa May, our Prime Minister at the time, put through the first big um, Brexit vote through Parliament, all the media on the day of the vote were saying, you know, is Theresa May going to sleep tonight? And then the next morning, did she sleep last night? As if the obvious answer was, of course, she wasn't going to sleep because of this massive vote. Yeah, you could say, you know, if everyone in the media could laugh about that, the idea that she would get a good night's sleep given those pressures, why would we assume that everyone's life is easier than that of Theresa May? Most people go through trials and tribulations in their everyday lives. So why would we expect them to have a perfect sleep? Speaking of the quest for perfect sleep and those sorts of things, do we really need gadgets or expensive mattresses and things like that? What are your views on that? Yeah, I mean, this is something that you see more and more of today. People are using tracking devices during their sleep or buying the expensive mattresses. I think that the um, the tracking devices, what they serve is really a kind of culture of evaluation where people are judging, evaluating themselves in the same way that, you know, 20 years ago on on TV on a Saturday night, we might watch a variety show with singers and dancers. Today, on Saturday night, we watch the variety show, watch the singers and dancers, but also a panel of judges evaluating them. This culture has now become so pervasive that the first thing people do in the morning is to evaluate, to count, to measure how much they've slept. And hence the popularity of the devices, which incidentally aren't aren't particularly accurate because they, they don't really factor in sleep latency time and the emphasis of most of the tracking devices on movement isn't entirely reliable. With the mattresses, you could argue that, you know, having a good mattress might help some people to sleep. Why not? But at the same time, sometimes the very fact that you're spending so much money on a mattress might have an effect because it's deemed a kind of at an unconscious level, a kind of punishment or penance for some kind of pre-conscious or unconscious guilt. And in the book, I argue that sleep has always had an association with conscience. In many cases today, when people describe and detail their insomnia, we find that there's some question of conscience or guilt uh, under the surface. And the idea of buying something very expensive in a way, echoes the old religious culture where we pay for our absolution for our sins, just as at night before going to bed, one's sins would have to be run through, recounted, and repented for. So in a way, there is still that perhaps religious dimension to the purchase of the mattress. But, you know, if the mattress is going to help you sleep, why not? As you know, we see in practice, it starts with the mattress and then it's the bedding and then it's the curtains and then it's the earplugs and then it's the eye shades. Yeah. And it's building a list of accessories that therefore become contingencies that for me to sleep, I must fulfill all of these contingencies. Yeah, exactly. So in a way, the demand just um, snowballs, the more and more things you need. I, I wouldn't want to discourage someone and say, you know, 
don't get a mattress, you know, don't get your earplugs because the problems are internal or to do with your work situation, you know, you know and so don't try these things. I think you know, people have to make their own choices, but I think there should be more information around about how many different things can contribute to people's sleeping problems. And of course, said the more general problem, what do we expect from sleep? And if we can give up the idea that we expect sleep to be this consolidated block of eight-hour perfection, then maybe things become uh, a bit more realistic, to say the least. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye. Well, that was wonderful to be part of that interview. Often I miss them and you you very ably do them on your own. Oh, great. Mm. It's just for me to be able to listen to somebody just speak very articulately about where our beliefs about sleep come from and mm. present a different view, or at least a historical context that suggests that, yeah, maybe actually sleep isn't what we think it should be. It's not about eight hours. It's not about continuous. It's not about having to be wakeful and have completely even performance across the day. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I knew you'd love the book. And, and yeah, thanks to Darian. That was a very informative, very articulate interview. So I can highly recommend Darian's book. So the book's called Why Can't We Sleep? And it's published by Penguin Books. And we'll put a link to the book in the show notes. So Moira, this discussion does challenge some of the ways we do CBT or the sort of standard way of doing CBT for insomnia. How do we soften that or how do we sort of nuance that? What hopefully we can take as a take-home message is that we need to change our relationship with sleep. In the same way that we've talked about that before with the mindfulness principles, we always talk to our clients or patients about that. So we, we've just got to change the relationship with sleep, the way we view it the way we might have all these attributional biases and and think that sleep's to blame for everything. And if only I slept, then I'd be super, super successful and all of these things that we've seen for a long time. But So, yeah, so more on that in in the future. Like it's, it's such a – it's really exciting. So to get some other context around sleep, we have had a previous podcast episode where we looked at sleep in different societies. Um, so you remember Andrew Beale's uh, paper on sleep in Mozambique that we talked about in episode 26 – and in that same episode, we also talked to Dr. Hamanchu Garg about sleep in India and how um, in traditional Indian culture they conceptualise sleep. So that's have a listen to that. It's also going to just challenge that existing notions about how sleep should be. So Dave, what's your clinical tip of the month? So keeping with the theme of this episode... When you're working with individuals with sleep problems, think about for them, what does sleep mean to them in a historical and a cultural sense? What's their expectation about sleep? So don't take it for granted that you know what they're looking for in terms of sleep, because what they're looking for is going to be very much guided by their belief system about sleep. And then when you start to work with them, although clinical trials, you know, we run a standardised protocol and we can show that has an effect, Really, we should be moving into individualised and personalised medicine because that's the way things are going. So try and think about, okay, how, what does sleep mean to that person in a historical and cultural sense? And how can you work with them on getting their sleep to work in a way that fits for them so that it's a more individualised approach? So Moira, what's your pick this month? I picked a paper this time. Um, and it's from Sean Kane's group, and Sean's well known to our podcast listeners. He's been on at least a couple of times from uh, Monash University here in Melbourne at the Turner Institute. The first author being Andrew Phillips. Whole, whole group of very high caliber 
um, researchers, and it's a very good paper called High Sensitivity and Inter-Individual Variability in the Response of the Human Circadian System to Evening Light. And what's so good about it in a nutshell is that it shows that there's actually a 50-fold difference, like an inter-individual variability in our response to light. So that's really, really going to make our messaging much more nuanced. So many people say, oh, that doesn't affect me whatsoever. You know, it doesn't worry me having my iPad in bed and all those things. But now we know that there's because, you know, it's, there's that much, a 50-fold difference amongst individuals. So it's, yeah, it's going to affect some people a, a great deal and others not at all. And we can make analogies like with caffeine, like people who there's a lot of individual variation with that too. And in fact, Monash, they were really big on caffeine maybe late 80s, early 90s, looking at research with their total individual differences. And that's really useful for the general public. It's really useful to know that the person who has coffee after dinner and sleeps well is not necessarily the norm. What about you? What's your pick of the month? This is something you were involved with. So I really like the ScriptWise program that's been launched. That was great. It's a resource for people who may be addicted to benzodiazepines or sleeping pills or have found that they're on sleeping pills and want to try and get off sleeping pills and as well as a resource both for health professionals and for clients or yeah. members of the public about that. So you feature in some of the videos, Moira. Yes. You, did, you did a great job. Oh, yeah. Good face for radio. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I was really, it was really great to be part of that. Obviously not for profit. We all just gave our time. And they're good, good quality, aren't they? Yeah, look, it's come together really mm. well. So that's a really great resource. I'll put a link to that. So look out for the next couple of episodes where we'll, we'll be looking to do food and sleep. This episode snuck in because we had the opportunity to talk about normal sleep. So it's got in ahead of the food episodes that we're still working on. Yeah. But look out for those over the next uh, couple of months. So yeah, I think it's time to sign off. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And please remember to send us any suggestions at podcast at sleephub.com.au. If you like the podcast, send us a review on iTunes. We've had a couple of nice reviews uh, lately. And you can subscribe to the podcast via any podcast app. Um, You can search for Sleep Talk, talking all things sleep. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.